the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host for today. And we are in the studio today actually talking about a topic that we heard from many of you, many parents, that they wanted to learn more about. So we are going to be talking about anxiety in kids today. And joining me for this conversation are Dr. Suzanne Sampang and Dr. Jeff Strawn. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, I want to get um, get right into to our topic, but before we do that, um, Dr. Sampang, would you tell us a bit about your role here at Cincinnati Children's and the types of patients that you help? Sure. Um, so I'm the Senior Medical Director of Child Psychiatry here at Cincinnati Children's. Um, my clinical practice is, is mainly inpatient, so hospitalized adolescents who are presenting with pretty severe psychiatric symptoms, but I also have a bit of an outpatient practice where I treat all ages, all diagnoses. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. And Dr. Strawn, would you share a bit um, about yourself with us as well? Absolutely. So I'm also a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I primarily practice in the outpatient setting, unlike Dr. Sampang, who works mostly in the inpatient uh, world. I also am primarily a researcher uh, focused on anxiety disorders at the University of Cincinnati, and there we try to understand how kids with anxiety do over time and what treatments are the most effective and also what things we can try to do to, to really change the outcome for kids. We're so glad you're here. Thank you both. And I feel like we've done, um, with having you two together, we really kind of have a, a nice coverage of all sorts of different um, areas of this topic. So let's get started. Who This is like the most simple, you know, we need a... Um, a definition of anxiety. Where should we start with understanding what anxiety is? Well, anxiety is, first of all, um, something that's a very normal emotion and reaction. So anxiety is another term for emotional distress. And all, all children, and adults for that matter, experience some form of anxiety. So, and it's important to remember that it's evolutionary. Um, you know, anxiety exists because it serves to protect us from potential danger. So in the most primitive sense of the word, for example, like a bear in the woods, that anxiety helps to help us to know like, okay, this thing might eat me. And so I need to prepare <laughs> to do some things or not do some things. Mm-hmm. And so it is really normal and expected for all people to have anxiety at some point. point in time, so that um, emotional distress. And that's really normal. So for kids, for example, younger kids in particular, it's really normal for maybe to have some type of separation anxiety. So when they're away from their parents, they might get upset. And that's, that's anxiety, but not necessarily clinically significant anxiety. So anxiety exists on a spectrum mm-hmm. from things that are really very normal and adaptive in some ways um, to abnormal where it's really causing problems. 
Yeah, I really like how Suzanne described it. And I, I want to key in on one word that she used, which is expected. And for me, when I think about anxiety, I think about anxiety that's normal when it's expected mm-hmm. and when it's proportional to what's going on or the circumstances. And I, I think also just to maybe dovetail on, on what Suzanne said, you know, even as kids or adults, anxiety is adaptive and we need it. You know, so while, you know, these days we're not running into bears, we still need something to motivate us to study for a test. And that's anxiety. And we need something to motivate us to be on time or, you know, be prepared for a job interview. And that's anxiety as well. So it has a function and it has a really important function. And you've each said something that I think then kind of leads us to the next point, which is clinically significant and um, disproportionate or how proportional it is to what's going on. So can we then kind of move our definition into the difference between anxiety that is typical and an anxiety disorder? And what is that kind of clinical difference? Yeah, it really comes to um, impairment. So if, it, if your anxiety is so severe that you're not able to function in your normal sphere socially, academically, or occupationally, um, things like that. Um, and so that functional impairment is a, a key component in um, how we sort of draw the line for clinical significance. For kids that may be not going to school because of impairing anxiety or not being able to do extracurricular activities Mm -hmm. or maybe it might even be not able to function in your home environment because of certain routines or rituals that you have to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and one of the things that I'm looking for, you know, when I'm evaluating a patient is just them no longer being able to do those normal developmentally appropriate things. So being able to go to a restaurant or a birthday party because of their social anxiety or not being able to spend the night at a friend's house if they're a teenager because of their separation anxiety or being so consumed by their generalized anxiety that they're not able to concentrate in school or that they're not able to sleep at night. So you just named off three different um, kind of types of anxiety, if I'm understanding correctly. What are some of those common types that, that kids will experience? Yeah, so when, when we think about the anxiety disorders, we, we think about this anxiety triad, so meaning we have three disorders. And the reason that we tend to lump them together is because they tend to do similarly with treatment. They mm-hmm. seem to kind of co-occur together. Uh, and then they uh, seem to really share the same risk factors. And those three are what we call generalized anxiety disorder, separation anxiety disorder, and social anxiety disorder. Now there are some other anxiety disorders, but really when we're looking at children and adolescents, those are the big three. So you said that those three often occur together. Um, What does that look like for a family if there's a child who is struggling and they're trying to determine where should we go next with understanding what might be going on with this kiddo? Yeah, um, so they can occur in combination, but they can also occur separately. Um, 
And so I think trying what's what's helpful and why we categorize them is because a it's helpful to study them when we try to figure out treatments, but it's also um, gives a name to this you know uh, complex of of symptoms that parents are seeing, and it helps put it together for them. Like oh okay, this is why I'm seeing all of these different things. So for separation anxiety, it's that refusal to go to school. It's um, kids have intense um, fear that something is going to happen to their parents or loved ones when they're not with them. They can have lots of headaches. They can have a lot of, actually, especially in younger kids, a lot of we call somatic symptoms. So stomach aches, headaches, I don't feel good. Mm. Um, and they worry. And these are kids that can be described as clingy. Um, and they can have like um, panic attacks or even tantrums when they're anticipating being separated from their parents. So that's the one cluster of, of um, symptoms. Um, another one, I don't know, Jeff, you wanna describe generalized anxiety? Sure, so generalized anxiety disorder is a little bit different from the other two anxiety disorders that are part of that triad. So generalized anxiety disorder tends to emerge a little bit later. Uh, so really early adolescence, whereas social anxiety disorder and separation anxiety disorder tend to show their head a little earlier. Now, generalized anxiety disorder is also something that can go along with depression, and as we mentioned, it can go along with the other anxiety disorders as well. But generalized anxiety disorder is gonna be these folks that have this uncontrollable sense of anxiety, and it's gonna be diffused, so they're gonna worry about the future. They're going to worry about the past. They're going to worry about what they said or what they didn't say. They're going to worry about little things. They're going to worry about their health. They're going to worry about the health of others. They're going to worry about big things in the world. So the environment or terrorism or certainly the pandemic these days. They're also, as Suzanne mentioned, many times going to have those physical symptoms. So that shakiness, that tremulousness, that feeling that your heart is beating too fast or that you're stomachs risen up into your chest. And in many cases, these are also kids that are gonna have difficulty with sleep. So they'll, they'll frequently lay in bed at night for hours just thinking about the next day or reprocessing what happened during the prior day or just thinking about this constellation of symptoms. Um, and then they also tend to have this sense of restlessness and many of them will describe a, a tension throughout the body in terms of their muscles and particularly in their neck and shoulders. Yeah, and then the, the social one. So, you know, we've described the, the one that's related to parents or caretakers. We've described the ones that's really diffuse and then the social anxiety is the one that's specifically around social interaction. So you know, worries about like talking in front of people or so this particularly becomes problematic in school settings when they're having to maybe give presentations or work in groups. You'll maybe see kids who um, won't want to eat lunch in the in the lunchroom because that can be really very anxiety provoking. The, the example that Jeff gave earlier about being in a restaurant, that can be very anxiety provoking. The, the, the thought of ordering a, a burger and fries and a Coke can just throw someone over the edge to the point that they maybe won't want to go to the restaurant with their family. And they have, um, it's limiting because, you know, part of normal development is kids being able to develop that social network. And these kids with 
social anxiety have very few friends um, and and it can be really inhibit their social development that way. I don't know if you had this experience, Suzanne, but earlier in the pandemic, as I had this repertoire of questions that I would ask about you know, raising your hand in class and is that hard for you? Or when you guys go to a restaurant, who orders? You know, I had all these questions to assess social anxiety. And then when the pandemic came, I really had to shift gears because people weren't going to restaurants and they weren't in in-person instruction. But what I think really struck me was as I worked with a lot of the kids with social anxiety disorder, those same symptoms were there. So it was no longer raising their hand in class, but it was looking at the camera or even having the camera on in the Zoom classroom. I think the pandemic changed so much. And I have heard many people who've said, oh my gosh, I just, my anxiety has been so over the top um, in the pandemic situation. And I think We've kind of had different chapters of it, and perhaps we're at a different place now with, um, you know, the the situation causing anxiety or in increasing anxiety. But can we just, would you help us by reflecting a little bit on kind of what we've experienced in the last couple of years and what perhaps parents could be looking for to indicate that um, their, their child might still be struggling with this situation would just love your thoughts and reflections on what we've been through so i think early on in the pandemic one of the things that i noticed was that it wasn't a universal increase in anxiety so we talked about that triad of anxiety disorders and one of the things that we found was that a lot of these kids with social anxiety were actually doing quite well we'd essentially removed a lot of the things that for them drove the anxiety or or brought attention to their anxiety, right? So they, they weren't in class anymore. They weren't having to do group work. Uh, in the lunchroom, there was assigned seating or maybe they didn't actually have to go to the lunchroom to eat lunch. However, for my kids with separation anxiety disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, I think what we saw was a tremendous boost in anxiety. I think the other thing that's important, and this is some of our research um, at UC that we've been doing in terms of a study that follows kids over time, what we found is that actually having COVID significantly worsened your anxiety if you already had an anxiety disorder. And we found that that was the case regardless of whether you were previously doing well, regardless of whether you were getting talk therapy, or regardless of whether you were getting medication. And it also didn't seem to be related to how sick you got with COVID, um, but we found a 33% worsening in anxiety in kids that had developed COVID. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, the um, impact of all of the media attention, you know, and, and developmentally kids don't always understand. They hear all of these numbers going up and what does that mean and what if I get it? What if my my grandparents get it? And so there are all of these things that I think play into the special circumstances around COVID. And then not to mention, you know, how their parents are dealing with it because the, the parents of children underwent enormous stress during the pandemic with, you know, um, their own shifts in employment, possibly their own social supports going away, things that helped 
their family run were maybe not present. And so I think that had an impact on the parents and some of the anxiety of parents certainly transmits to the kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Are anxiety disorders genetic in nature? If there's a, a family who has um, a, a parent who has some of these concerns, do we see it in the kids often too? There definitely is a genetic predisposition. Um, Certainly, and, and we do know that some of the anxiety disorders are probably more heritable, so passed along than mm -hmm. other anxiety disorders. Um, so among the ones that probably are the most genetically influenced, uh, so the most heritable, um, would be panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. So uh, my next question is um, about symptoms, and I know that we've kind of you know, talked through what parents can be looking for, but are there any other conditions or disorders that can look similar to anxiety that might perhaps be confusing? Um, yeah, definitely there are. I mean, some of the symptom overlap um, can reach across different types of diagnoses. For example, you know, kids with um, generalized anxiety disorder often have problems with attention because they're so worried about all of these different things. It's, it's hard for them to pay attention. And so that overlaps with other disorders that, that say maybe present with inattention as a cardinal symptom. So attention deficit disorders is one that comes to mind. Um, depression is another one that comes to mind, but there are lots of things that can present with inattention just as, as anxiety disorders do. Um, another one that I think that um, is, is sort of a great mimicker is, is um, traumatic experiences in kids can look like lots and lots of different things. I mean, it's really a, a, a special type of anxiety disorder, but it can look like lots of other disorders. Um, and so I think that that's all part of it. I think learning disorders too can present with some of that failure to pay attention and, and those types of things. Certainly agree. And, and I think one of the things that's helpful, you know, as, as Suzanne and I evaluate kids and work with their families is understanding that oftentimes these disorders follow a typical pattern in terms of how they emerge and when they emerge. And so looking for things that seem a little bit out of the ordinary. So um, for me, uh, if I'm looking at someone, for example, who's had no anxiety prior to eighth grade, but really has started to have intense anxiety beginning in the eighth grade, I'm really trying to smoke out whether or not there's something else going on at school in terms of just as the curriculum has become more difficult, as kids are having to think differently and multitask differently during that eighth, ninth grade transition, you know, is there a learning disorder or a mild learning weakness that we maybe missed earlier that you know, wasn't brought to attention earlier that is now looking like anxiety. So you mentioned ages at which certain symptoms can present themselves. Can you talk through a bit about like what those kind of stages are and what could be popping up um, in that typical progression? It's a really good question, and, and I think this is probably something that intuitively the listeners can relate to. So when we look at the books that are popular or the movies that are popular with the three, four, five-year-olds versus those that are popular with the six, seven, eight-year-olds, 
it tells us what kids are worried about. So when we look at something like Disney, Pixar's A Bug's Life, we see that it reflects insects and an increasing exposure to insects and it's really popular with the late preschool or toddler age kids. Again, that's something that kids are worried about at that age. They're also worried about darkness, they're worried about injury, they're worried about falls and other types of injuries, as well as they're worried about their parents, right? So if we look at some of the older Disney movies, um, like The Rescuers, it's about separation. So those normal fears that emerge around that three to seven year old range. Then as we look at other books or movies that are popular as you move into adolescence, they're about more complex fears. They're about things going on in the world. They're about social evaluation and what people are thinking of others. So that's really some of the developmentally bound anxiety. And again, much of this is normal. So Disney is helping us with their movies. At least by... with this. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're helping us have interesting stories to um, add some opportunity to normalize some of these things. Right, and I think, you know, as, as clinicians, we would think about this probably using the term exposure, right? Mm -hmm. So exposure is the cornerstone of treatment for anxiety disorders. And many of the things that we work with in terms of our younger kids, like the ant farm, you know, for the younger child, that's about increasing their familiarity with the bugs and increasing their exposure to those ants. So if there's a family who suspects that they have, um, have a kiddo who could use some help, um, who um, might be struggling with anxiety, what should their first step be? Um, so I think first, the first thing to do would be to talk to their kids about it um, and to explore it and um, to really get them to their kids to start talking about what it is they're worried about. Um, as we said before, not all anxiety is something that's that needs treatment. And so it starts with trying to sort out what is this all about? And so to have the conversation. And is that the right word to use if you're going to ask a younger child, what are, what's worrying you? You look, you seem like you're worried. Can you tell me more about that? Is that kind of an okay way to start that conversation? Yeah, I think open questions are great to say, you know, what worries you the most? Or sometimes I feel like it's, it's better to start out with an observation. So as a parent saying, you know, I noticed yesterday when your friend Johnny came over, you seemed kind of tense and... You got a little upset and you had to walk away and leave for a minute and it seemed like you were uncomfortable with them being over at the house. Well, I was wondering what was going on with you then. And so you're, you know, sharing an observation and then leaving it open and asking the question. And then you can get to maybe the question of, you know, what are the things that worry you the most? And sometimes we can even share our own personal experiences for, mm -hmm. you know, what sort of struggles that we may have had growing up with worries, because we've all had them. Yeah, I really like that approach, Suzanne, in terms of kind of observing something that's going on. And, and also, I think, you know, that really creates the atmosphere of openness and curiosity. Is there anything that parents just should not say to a child who might be struggling? I would say, you know, the 
to not dismiss it. Okay. You know, we've all been in situations where we've been worried about something and and someone says, oh, don't worry about it. Just relax. And that's been helpful to no one ever, in my opinion. <laughs> you know? And so don't do that to the kids. You know, if they're anxious about something, it's something that's real. And, and you know, a statement like that that's dismissive doesn't provide any comfort. It doesn't provide any reassurance. Um, so that would be... I absolutely agree with that. Probably the only other thing that I would add is is maybe just avoiding blame. And, and again, I think we all want to you know, avoid blame, but sometimes we implicitly do blame. Um, maybe not necessarily in, in the words that we're using in that moment, but you know, in terms of other things that we may do that dismiss the child or adolescent's anxiety or fears. Yeah. The other thing that I, I might suggest to parents is that um, you, know, you definitely don't want to blow it off, but the other side of that is, is that you know, you want to um, agree with them and acknowledge it, but you don't also don't want to enable or add fuel, add fuel to the worries. And so, you know, when it, when we have kids that are upset, you know, our natural instinct is to protect them and to pull them out of mm-hmm. the thing that's distressing to them. When really, it's you know, we need to stay calm and listen and you know, uh, display understanding, but also convey confidence that they're going to be okay. Mm. that they can get through it and that there are ways to manage those worry feelings and help them understand it, Um, but not to sort of feed into it by saying, oh, you don't want to go to the restaurant? Okay, well, that's okay. Then we'll just eat at home. Absolutely. I was actually going to circle back to that restaurant example that you had earlier, Jeff, um, about how um, difficult it can be for a child to order a burger and a drink. Um, how should we as parents think about that situation? Is it better for the child for us to encourage them that they can do it and ask them to do it even though it's uncomfortable? Or like, is there a point at which, you know, we should take over ordering and help them that way? Like I, I can see both sides and I'm not sure which one. That's- oh. It's a is really the right tough one. question, and I wish I could just punt to Suzanne, although you... you <laughs> but I asked you directly. You asked me directly. <laughs> so in terms of, you know, what I would say in terms of kind of those experiences that are going to the restaurant, that's an exposure, like mm-hmm. we were just talking about. And so one of the things that we want in terms of any exposure is we want there to be a little bit of distress. We want there to be a little bit of discomfort. But we want that discomfort to be manageable. Mm. And we want it to also be controllable in terms of just the amount of time that it might last or to some extent the magnitude, you know, the volume of mm-hmm. that distress. And so one of the things that I would do in that situation is let's make this a lower stakes time in terms of this is not Friday night at the, your favorite restaurant. Uh, this is mid-morning. And let's kind of look at the menu or maybe start with you're just going to order your drink Mm -hmm. Um, and mom and dad will order the rest of the food. The other thing that may be helpful is just going to the restaurant with mom and dad and having mom and dad order the first time, uh, but then going back the next time and having the child order the drink. Yeah, and I think there can be a lot of... 
a lot of the anxiety in that that situation is all anticipatory, meaning, you know, before you get there, what am I going to do? Oh, the what if they don't have what I want, or what if they look directly at me, or right, you know, what right. if they, you know, they skip me, or you know, it's all this right, right. The, the scenario plan of all the things that can go wrong, and so some of the, you know anticipatory planning for parents can be like okay well this is where we're gonna this is how we're gonna do it and if this happens then this is how we can handle it and so there's you know structure binds anxiety and so if you have a plan you have a game plan then you're more likely to be able to get through it and if none of those bad scenarios happen well then everyone's all the better for it and that last point that Suzanne mentioned is really 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 important and in, in our jargon, we call that violation of expectation, right? So I expected that the barista at Starbucks would laugh out loud when I ordered that or when I asked if they had Splenda, and it didn't happen. That's actually where we get the improvement in terms of the anxiety. So I'm curious, if we're using our restaurant scenario, is going in having a plan for what the child is going to order. Is that helpful um, in getting them? So it's like if we've already looked up the menu online, they've chosen what they want, and we know we're going to order a Sprite and the burger. Um, that That's kind of a helpful step that parents could be part of it. Absolutely. And I'm okay in that scenario if they look to mom or dad when the server asks if they want ketchup or mayonnaise or if they want the special sauce or what have you. Because we didn't have a plan for that. Right, right. (laughs) That's okay for the parents to manage that distress. That was unanticipated. And and Jeff's point earlier about like you want it to be manageable. If it's getting to the point where it looks like your child is going to have a meltdown, that's Mm -hmm. the time to say, okay, I'm going to pull it back and I'm going to take over this time. And then when you talk about it later, it could be like, you did so great because you got to this point mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm so proud of you for getting that point, but I saw that it was starting to get too much. So I, I just, you know, helped a little bit. But next time we can do this. Absolutely. So I love this kind of first level check-in. If a, if a parent notices something is going on with their kiddo, um, if after that check-in they're like, I, I really would like... A professional opinion is their child's pediatrician the next right step as kind of the next person to say hey I think we might have something going on here or would you recommend something different I think pediatricians are great resources um, just to have the initial talk through um, there are lots of um, things that pediatricians can do like screenings and you know um, kind of triage for the level of um, intervention, if any, at that point. Um, And then the pediatrician may then make referrals for um, therapy or maybe to see someone like Dr. Strana or I for um, an evaluation to determine what the next steps of treatment might be. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, we probably have some more resources now in terms of the schools with many of them having some mental health staff in them. Um, and and others that can at least help to to guide some of this initial evaluation. Yeah. And in general, you know, for for symptoms that are, you know, um, more mild or moderate, therapy is going to be the main 
and first intervention. Um, and we've talked about some of the tenets of that before earlier with, you know, exposure, depending on the type of anxiety that's there, um, and some behavioral maybe treatment to, to do some of this, you know, how do you anticipate and manage the anxiety symptoms when they come up. It's really, really more for the more severe symptoms or scenarios that we would look at things like medications mm -hmm. in, in addition mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, and so we do use medications often in conjunction with the talk therapy. Um, some patients are treated just with medications or just with the talk therapy as well. I believe that you have answered all of the questions that I had prepared for you today. Um, we always like to say, is there anything we've forgotten, anything we've missed, anything that you would love to be able to share with, um, with families in our last couple of minutes? I think that the only thing that I might say is that, you know, um, as parents trying to model healthy ways of anxiety is really important, you know, letting kids see how we cope with anxiety, which is part of all of our lives, and, and how do we do that in a healthy way is, goes a long way. And, and to kind of take it from there, I think, you know, oftentimes we're so focused on what's going on in the moment and we lose track of what we're doing as we're dealing with an anxious child or an anxiety provoking situation. But that modeling is so important for our kids. And if parents are going to take that and become good role models for their kids or do some self-reflection to ensure that they are modeling the right things, um, what are, are there kind of some some high level think about these things yourself as you're trying to model managing anxious situations or anxiety provoking situations? Some things that come to mind for me are that oftentimes we'll see people focus on not having any anxiety or not having any distress. And I think we talked early on about the fact that anxiety has a really, really, really important role. So allowing your kids to see you in an anxiety-provoking situation or to see you tolerate the distress that may come with an anxiety-provoking situation I think is so important. Um, I think the other things, like Suzanne mentioned, are really creating that environment of openness and being able to observe the child, share those observations, and then wonder with them. Uh, as one of my colleagues would say, wait, watch, and wonder. Yeah, and then so self-awareness of, mm -hmm. of your own states and then confidence that like, all right, yeah, I'm really stressed out right now, but it's okay. I got this. This is what I'm going to do. This is my plan and it's going to be okay. And I think that um, one of my kiddos um, has a harder time in anxiety um, provoking situations and I have found that if I assure that kiddo that we got this we'll figure it out it's you know it doesn't feel good now but we're in this together like the together is really an important thing Absolutely. for that child and that seems like a thumbs up kind of thing to do just you're not in this alone oh, yeah Absolutely. The people that are on the podcast can't see me nodding my head, but yeah, I'm nodding my head. <laughs> Good. Well, that one makes me feel better too. I don't know. There's something about saying it, it's okay. We got this. We're together. We, we'll get through it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. 
we'll figure it out. And Absolutely. that's the that's the constant message in anxiety because it feels so debilitating, but it, in the end, it's okay. It's okay. You're gonna get through it, and you're gonna be okay, and I'm gonna be okay, and we'll do it together. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on July 21st, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy Podcast is for informational and educational purposes. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco, and this episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.